0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary Void or prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
1: ladies and gentlemen welcome to meanwhile here on earth this program features in-depth conversations with the leading names in the subjects of ufo's abductees the paranormal panel discussions, and the very best and brightest of the next generation of writers and researchers. Meanwhile here on Earth, the show breaking new ground in alternative talk with your intrepid host, veteran investigative writer and researcher, Peter Robbins.
2: And welcome or welcome back to Meanwhile Here on Earth with me, your host, Peter Robbins. Uh, It is a beautiful June day here in Ithaca, New York. I hope it's as nice where you are. And um, no monologue today. I want to get right into it. Uh, Technical problems have um, uh, gotten in the way of bringing on um, these two guests. And I am delighted that we were all together here today. Chanel Chance is the granddaughter of Kenneth Arnold, the first pilot ever to have a UFO encounter. And in the course of doing so and reporting same, Mr. Arnold changed history. And I don't mean UFO history. I mean history uh, with a capital H. As many of you knew, know, the event involved the sighting of nine unidentified flying objects. This in the vicinity of Mount Rainier uh, while flying over the Cascade mountain range on June twenty-fourth, June twenty-fourth, nineteen forty-seven, and uh, in the beautiful state of Washington, Arnold made his home in Boise, uh, Idaho, where Chanel grew up. She majored in philosophy while studying at the College of Western Ohio, Idaho, and received her pharmacy technical technician certificate from Clark College in Vancouver, Washington. She is a proud mother, wife. Animal lover and has her own UFO sighting uh, while living in Portland, Oregon. Our second guest, Earl Gray Anderson, is MUFON State Director of Southern California, an active member of MUFON's Experiencer Research Team, also known as ERT, and uh, will be ho- and hosted the Experiencer workshops at last year's MUFON Symposium, uh, and will be doing the same this year in Cincinnati, Ohio, and that's at the end of August. Earl has personally investigated over 800 UFO reports and specializes in experiencer and high strangeness cases. He has appeared on many radio shows, podcasts, and TV shows, and teaches a fully accredited college in ufology at Los Angeles Otis College of Art. A native of Southern California, Earl is also uh, a published singer-songwriter-guitarist with three CDs under his belt. He dotes on his three children, possibly even more so on his three grandchildren, and lives happily with his amazing wife, Lisa, and their two cats, Gigi and Thor. And that said, Chanel and Earl, welcome to Meanwhile Here on Earth.
3: Hi there, Peter. Where's Chanel? <laughs> and oh no, we just lost Chanel. It does. We um, seem to have
2: had an abduction here. I've got her book. <laughs> me too. Right. I am yeah. confident that beyond behind the scenes right now, the two Chanel's oh goodness, are working it out. Um, there she is. There she is. Uh-huh. Hi, Chanel. Hey. Welcome back. <laughs> Sorry about uh, that. <laughs> I'm, this is such a kind of special situation in that your grandfather really did change history and we kind of play with words sometimes and there's UFO history, but your grandfather really transformed history with a report of something that had never happened before in modern times, a pilot observing truly legitimate, completely unidentified flying objects. The book that he published is, of course, The Coming of the Saucers. It came out in two editions originally. I want to talk to you about that. And then really the reason that we're having this show is at some point you decided this book should be republished and in a expanded format uh, with more information, more wonderful illustrations and more background. Um, Let's start here uh, with Earl also um, welcome to ask questions and I'm delighted you're both friends from before this. Also it occurs to me, Earl's introduction included the name of his cats. Hello, (laughs) you have cats, what are their names? Chanel? Oh, my cat. I thought you were talking Chanel. to Earl. Yeah, yeah. First.
4: yeah I have cashmere and Rosie, and then I have two dogs, Kato and Sasha, and then we have two parakeets, Deimos and Sanford. <laughs> so we have full house of furry Excellent. creatures. The full animal inventory.
2: Yeah. Um, I think you can step back from the mic a bit. It's just... a. Um, Yeah, Um, to
4: start with, um, were you born in in Boise? I was, I was born where uh, my grandfather chose to make his home. He originally was from North Dakota, but loved the Four Seasons in Boise. He still loved the Northwest though, loved Seattle. His ashes were sprinkled over his favorite Japanese garden in Seattle after he had passed away. But um, growing up, he tried to talk to me before he passed from a uh, cancer, but he ended up, you know, succumbing to pneumonia, but uh, he sat me down and he just knew I was going to carry the torch. He kind of prepared me for it by saying, don't trust the government. Chanel. you got to think for yourself. And, and um, I was always so proud that he changed history and um, you know, it's sad though. Cause he got so much ridicule. He used to say, he was an unfortunate goat that re- first reported it because he was being treated as an Orson Wells back when he made his report. Um, you know, it was the first report of the modern UFO uh, era. So, you know, he got a lot of ridicule, but um, he was... A very experienced pilot. He was a solid citizen. He was a respected businessman. He was a family man. had no criminal record. He was part of Idaho Search and Rescue Posse. He also flew prisoners uh, in the state of Idaho uh, to prison. He had a clean rec- record, and nothing was wrong with him. But, um, you know, his friends, too, after he's had his flying saucer sighting, his friends started seeing flying saucers. And the government, you know, treated it like a crime to talk about it back then. And he always, he always felt like, you know, it was his duty to find the truth. He, he invested $30,000 of his own money researching UFOs and flying saucers. And, um, he had friends that were, you know, high ranking military officials, the pictures of the UFOs in the book that I published, uh, that I released that he wrote on the back. He truly believed were the same flying saucers he saw. And, um, Those two pictures are in the book that I republished because we shared some uh, pictures that have never been released. My mom's just been covering everything because my mom, you know, definitely was my grandfather's favorite daughter. And she, she, you know, 69 years old, she's getting older and I'm trying to get all the information out of her that I can. Um, You know, just like everybody wants to hear about how they had a pet owl. Um, It's a Mike uh, Cleland thing. You know, she had a pet owl named Barney. And she used, used to have to feed him meat and they end up taking him to the zoo. But, you know, people think that's special that my grandfather and, you know, my my mom had a pet owl because it has something to do with UFOs or, you know, anyhow. Um, that's a popular but,
3: screen uh, memory for for abductees. This they'll or, you yeah. know, the, instead of remembering the little gray aliens, they'll, they'll talk about seeing four foot tall owls. Yeah. So it's very, uh, very, Chanel, let's go back, uh, kind of to
2: the beginning in a way. Um, you have brothers and sisters.
4: I have a brother. He's not, he looks a lot like my grandfather, but he's just not really interested in the, uh, subject of flying saucers. And I have a cousin the same way. It's just cause our family has been through so much with it. Like, sure. um, even though my brother and my cousin and I know the story, um, you know, it's still kind of a scary subject in a way. I mean, sure. They admitted that the government admitted that the flying saucers are real and they, they know more than they're telling, obviously, you know, the Vatican has secrets of flying saucers for, for thousands of years and they haven't released everything that they have stored. And, you know, my big question is, is they've always been here. Why, why was there a veil lifted in June 24th, 1947 when my, grandfather had his sighting because, you know, they were depicted in in Renaissance paintings. So they've always been here. But, you know, it was like we were all in a sleep and we'd forgot about, um, you know, the the aliens, which I think are angels, you know, just depicted like in the book Enoch um, out of the Bible. And my grandfather was a big believer in the waspy Bible. It's O A P S H E. And even Ray Palmer, um, they were at the 1977 UFO Congress in Chicago. And Ray Palmer had this whole uh, thing called the Stymie Factor, which was the ridicule, the debunking, the harassment all added up to the Stymie Factor, a term devised by Ray Palmer, a friend of Arnold for 30 years, and a in a lecture, Paul gave in 1977, two months before he died. But curiously, this is what Palmer believed, the Waspi, which purports a history of the earth and heavens for the past 79,000 years. Urethrians are astral entities travel in vehicles along roadways that link levels or plateaus in the spiritual world that exist six inches to 100 miles above the surface of the earth. The craft are from both worlds. They're multidimensional. And um, they, Palmer noted that they made the same particular fluttering motions as Arnold's UFO cited in 1947. After further thought and investigation, Parmel, Palmer concluded the shaver was contacting WASP-like astral entities who could obsess or possess people. And the Duro did live under the surface of the Earth. And although solid world coexists with the Earth, Palmer drew a startling conclusion, I think flying sauce. Of the dead, my grandfather totally believed at the end of his life that the connection to living and the dead. He was very advanced in his thinking. He knew they were multidimensional, and um, I've grown up with just being a UFO like uh, enthusiastic. You know, watching each, every ancient alien I could, and and I believe that portals are the mountains. That's why they're seen by the mountains, the volcanoes that like Mount Adams, they have flying saucer sightings there every night. Um, I had my UFO experience in Portland, Oregon, where there's Mount Hood. And uh, my grandfather hold had it, his it, flying hold hold
2: I I just want to yeah. go in a certain order here. Um, okay. Do you remember as a little girl when you first became aware first of this idea of flying saucers or... Uh, you know um potentially hard metal machines of advanced technology that your grandfather had some relationship with was there some particular memory that you have going back to when you were really young when you again yeah. started to think about these things and your grandfather in relation to them and about how were you, old were you
4: yeah i guess it scared me a lot in the beginning cuz it, my grandmother, his, his wife Doris, she kind of got into the study of the unknown. She was, a, she channeled and, and so I had a lot of, you know, information about like just being a new age type person, but my grandfather, I remember him as being a hunter and a fisherman. We used to hunt pheasants. I remember waking up early and with my father and my grandfather, we'd go out and hunt pheasants and my mom would make a reese out of the pheasant feathers. Because they're so beautiful. Pheasants are beautiful, but, you know, birds. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky?
4: changed the world and in the 80s early 80s it still wasn't the right time and he knew that possibly by the time I was older it'd be the right time for the subject which it is now there's UFO conferences everywhere you know it's not you're not crazy now if you say you have seen them everybody pretty much has seen them I have friends that you know also seen Bigfoot I think I had a Bigfoot experience too so you know there's all sorts of uh you know new age ideas that are that are happening now with the way of the world is everybody's looking for an answer because you know it seems like world war three is like gonna start and people are freaking out you know but uh the world's just a crazy place right now so
2: right again um my question is do you remember a certain moment as a little girl when you started to become aware of ufos flying saucers? And then what was it that caused you to understand that your grandfather was in some way connected to this subject?
4: Well, I mean, just knowing about like these aliens, I, I always thought that they were similar to angels in the Bible because of the way they were depicted. I studied religion a lot growing up, but I had a bathroom window in my bathroom. And when I was really young, I thought there were aliens that were watching me through the bathroom window, like all the time I was scared to go in the bathroom because there was a window in there and um, that's when I was really young because you know it was still a grandfather you know kind of believed that it was possibly the way that we, you know we traveled on the other side and my grandparents believed in reincarnation and that's in the waspy bible as well um, you know and so I've just really been getting into the waspy bible because it's what my grandfather believed I have his Awaspie Bible. He was also into the books of Charles Fort. My mom's having his book of Charles Fort rebinded for me. But Charles Fort, um, between 1919 and 1932, he put together a chronicle of countless unexplained phenomena, which included UFOs. And so he was just all obsessed with the books of Charles Fort and the Awaspie Bible. So I'm trying to trace like his train of thought on where he was going with his belief of the whole subject. He told me once that he thought that the entities that were in the flying saucers were sitting in the house. They were they were in the house because there are indent- indentations on the furniture. And that kind of perplexed him, you know, because he thought that they were just it was the way we traveled after his sighting. There was a ball of light that appeared in his house that scared him so much that he recited the Lord's prayer until it disappeared. Hmm. And um, you know, after that, the thought of it was possibly a soul that was traveling in the house, you know, as a ball of light. Um, and uh, Chanel. That Chanel. Yeah,
2: Chanel. <laughs> Again, my question is: Do you remember a specific time when you were a little girl when you first became aware? And what that might have been to bring you, you know, realize that there are these, your father, your grandfather is connected with this subject um, that, you know, the world seems so caught up. And you might not have a specific memory, but I'm curious if you do, when you first started to realize that he was a significant person in the world, not just to you and your family.
4: Well, yeah, I always thought that my grandfather needed to be remembered for history. I mean, honestly, I was always upset that. Roswell got so much, you know, attention, because as I've been studying, my grandfather's sighting was a lot more popular until like the late 80s when Roswell kind of exploded. But um, I always wanted my grandfather remembered for history. I felt like he changed the world. And so, I mean, I was always very proud of him. I told my second grade teacher, my grandfather was the first pilot to report flying saucers over Mount Rainier, you know, I was just like so so enthusiastic about the subject and my teacher was like that's nice honey but you know just probably her thinking oh her family's her family's a little crazy you know and and until you know it got to be more accepted um like it it was in the second
2: grade really that you had your first experience of the adult world not taking the subject and your grandfather seriously
4: yes yes no i remember that day And I was just so proud of him. And and it was about the time I I think he died about the time I was in the third grade. So um, I definitely remember that because I was so proud of him. I was so proud of him and what what he did for the world. But, you know, he got so much ridicule um, with the whole Maury Island thing. Captain uh, Davidson and Lieutenant Brown. They were his friends. They went through his mail. The postmaster knew where his address was. They all people had to put on the mail was flying saucer man, Boise, Idaho. And the postman knew exactly where my grandfather lived. These two uh, military officials, before Mori Island, came over and had dinner with my grandparents and went through his mail and took out all the uh, spiritual, religious leader. Uh, letters that came from pastors of churches that thought he was a prophet of the end of the world and they didn't want mm-hmm. another Joan of Arc because you can't control religious figures you can't control him. Wow. but he got really scared um, later with uh, how he wanted to have seminars at the Fork and Knife Club and, and get people together to talk about the subject and his buddy that worked for the Idaho Statesman, the aviation editor Dave Johnson took him out into the desert and said, Ken, walk 50 feet away from your car. Your car is bugged. And my brother witnessed the government eliminate their own men when he was in the military. You need to stop with your speeches. They don't want you speaking Ken. And he was so sad because he had spent money on putting these flyers together that some of them still exist. It's the flying saucer. As I saw it, he had one fork and knife club seminar in Ontario, Oregon before The the offer was withdrawn mysteriously, and my grandfather thought 100% the government was behind it. They didn't want him talking, and um, that upset him very much. And so he was pretty quiet most of his life because of all the attention he got and how famous he was. He was only 32 years old when he had the signing of the Flying Saucers on the 24th. Interesting.
2: I I never knew that.
4: Yeah, he was 32 years old. 29.
2: Let me ask you, um, Kenneth Arnold is always described in the literature as a pilot and a, a private pilot and businessman. What was his business back he sold then? Fire certainly.
4: Sa- oh, he sold fire safety equipment. He would fly into remote areas and he was very successful at it. He sold fire safety equipment and, um, uh, he was selling it in Seattle, Washington, before he took off to have a sighting over Mount Rainier on June 24, 1947. He was searching for a crashed C-46 military transport plane that had crashed. There was a $5,000 reward. He wanted to find it. He felt like he was in the area. The day was a good sunny day. He could see this crashed military air, air aircraft carrier. It was a marine transport plane. But instead for three minutes in the af- Tuesday afternoon, he saw nine flying saucers flying in echelon formation. And they seemed almost in and out of this world, like fluttering in and out of reality in the way he described them uh, as a chain shape almost. And, um, and it just he, it was his duty to report what he saw. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the bombs had just been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki two years before, and he thought they were foreign intelligence, but they were flying at about, he first clocked them between Mount Adams and Mount Rainier at 1,200 miles per hour, but later on clocked them at 1,700 miles per hour, which nothing blew that fast. They had no tail. he he didn't understand what he was being because it it was so transcendent you know it was was nothing to
2: compare it to in our modern world
4: yeah he it was always um, a spiritual experience
2: for him i i want to ask you growing up this book was obviously in the house and at some point even when you were a little girl before you were, you know, really ready to read it, you knew that your grandfather and Ray Palmer wrote this book, and we'll get to Ray Palmer shortly. Do you remember the first time you actually sat down and read or tried to read this book?
4: When I was in my early 20s, and I knew it had to be republished because my grandfather, when he was dying of colon cancer, he didn't, Ray Palmer gave him the copyright, and he was so sick, he just didn't, put it in his name and so we lost the copyright and um I my mother had always talked about we needed to republish the book and I just had the opportunity this last year because um the Maury Island people Charlotte Fever and Philip Lipson typed up the book for me but it had a lot of mistakes and then I found a neighbor that was an angel that knew how to format on Amazon and so we whipped it all together and then mom was like, okay, I'll add some photos and, you know, he has a poem by Augustus Post in there that's signed. I want that. You know, that's probably worth some money. It's in my mom's uh, records. But my mom inherited his estate. She lives in the house he built with his own hands for my grandmother. And it's got a view of the whole beautiful house. But like Mm. our family's trying to hold on to that so so hard because it's the way everything's gone up in value around your property taxes are super high but my mom inherited the estate and so she she has a lot of i grew up going through the files that was left that he left and seeing all sorts of odd things i donated a letter that was from the olympian society to the Chehalis Museum, they researched it and it was some unknown UFO cult in Temecula, California they knew nothing about. And that letter always perplexed me because I was like, they were talking about flying saucers flying over Los Angeles three days after his sighting, which I thought was odd because he he was supposed to be the first person in modern UFO history to experience the flying saucers, yet these people were talking about them as if they've always been here so i don't understand how it there was like how we'd forgotten completely that they didn't exist like in south america they embrace it down there because it's part of their uh religious history it seems um you know the south americans are just they're so open about uh and they have a lot of sightings down there too in south america about the flying saucers but I think that the conquistadors with the Mayans destroyed a lot of evidence of the communications with the, you know, so-called aliens, like giving us technology, you know, to to help mankind. You know, I know they've intervened. I always thought when I was little, Mary, M- Mother Mary, was impregnated by an alien because she was a virgin you know and then growing up we'd hear about aliens impregnating babies into people i'm like well it only makes sense that if it's a true story if mother mary was a virgin she was impregnated by an alien slash angel and i've read the book enoch and it does seem like you know that they were taken out of the bible and the bible's been rewritten to to uh get people thinking that this is the only life that they're going to have and you either go to heaven or go to hell. And I don't think it's as simple as that. I think that we live many lives. <laughs>
2: um, Ray Palmer, who is credited as the co-author of the book, <clears throat> coming out of World War II, he was one of the bigger names in kind of pulp science fiction publishing. And it, in some ways, it didn't do your grandfather's reputation a lot of good to have his name associated with a, a major Person involved in science fiction, but of course, Ray helped the book get published. I'm can you tell us how he ended up originally holding on to the copyright? This really was your grandfather's book. Do you know how that happened?
0: it
4: was, you know, I don't know for sure. I know that they communicated. It was before long-distance phone calls. He was in Chicago. My grandfather was in Boise, Idaho. They would send records back and forth to each other, and my aunt lost them in her storage. But they would communicate that way. Ray Palmer, I think, just had the money to, I maybe make the copyright happen since he had Maury Island happen, which Fred Chrisman part of maury island was a fictional writer for ray palmer That didn't you know my mom's always thought that maury island might be you know urban legend because um it supposedly happened before my grandfather's signing but fred christman one of the people about the maury island knew ray palmer and so ray palmer paid my grandfather two hundred dollars to go to maury island to investigate these ufos that dropped out of the sky in the Maury Island, uh, Puget Sound area, and uh, supposedly killed a dog, uh, burnt this man's son's face. And it, it must have been Harold Dog, Fred and I don't know who. But my grandfather was so scared. He got there to investigate in Tacoma. There was nowhere for him to stay. He went to a motel, and mysteriously, there was a motel regist- uh, with a reservation for Kenneth Arnold. And so he got hmm. that room. He swore the room was being bugged when uh, Captain Davison and Lieutenant Brown were there with the fragments of the flying saucer that supposedly fell. My grandfather felt like it looked like lava sludge. He just got rid of his sample, which is totally sad. But the Maury Island people, uh, Charlotte and Philip, they actually have a piece of it that they show when they go to sell their Maury Island book that supposedly is is left from the Maury Island crash but you know he saw us flying saucers for three minutes in June and that wasn't enough really to write a book the whole Maury Island thing was total a great story because it added you know to make for the rest of the book the coming of the saucers the first 90 pages are my grandfather the next are Ray Palmer you know, so the first ninety pages are are my grandfather's words and yeah. his recap of the citing. But I do have to say in the sixties or I think it was late fifties, early sixties, double day books offered my grandfather $50,000 to do a fictional story on his sighting. And he would not do it. And it upset my grandfather so much because she wanted that money, but he was a nuts and bolts type of guy. He want, he was simple, you know, he's a simple fisherman. He just wanted his story to stay true and he didn't want, you know, it to be fictionalized at all. And until 1977, he did the Yoho Congress. And before that, he really hadn't done much because they were so scared of the threat that they got from Dave Johnson when he was doing his seminars with the Fork and Knife Club. They made it a crime to talk about UFOs back then. So anyhow, (laughs) I have so much, you know, to, to relay about, you know, how it used to be. You know, now you can say, you see UFO. Wow, that's great. That's cool. You know, it's accepted. But back then, you know, he just, He always felt like he was the unfortunate goat that had the sighting, but he had eight sightings in his life. And my mom's trying to get them all documented for history. He was just a pilot and he always was up in the air. He had a sighting in La Grande, Oregon. He had a sighting in California after leaving San Francisco. You know, he definitely had more sightings, but he was not public with, with them at all because of what happened with his first sighting.
2: Um, Chanel, um, again, on, on the book itself, this is not just an interesting historic artifact because, you know, your grandfather wrote it in the world of UFO literature and the world of historic literature. This is really the first UFO book. Um, Charles Fort, who of course, uh, Earl and I are aware of and who, whose work was so impacting that we got a new word in the English language because of his diligence. And, um, it's of course Fortean, um, part of his theories were that not only were we were not alone, but we were somebody's pets or we were. Uh, Hmm. under the influence of or possibly the creation of a wonderful visionary thinker in the book um, again for for some people this would matter less but as a book geek how did you or your family or your grandfather get that copyright back and kind of lay the groundwork for your republication of the book which again both earl and i are enjoying tremendously and i think the things that you've added are of real value. Do you know how that yeah. copyright came back to you and the family?
4: Well, it, we'll never get it back. It's gone. I Somebody back in 2014 asked me who had the copyright and it was public domain. And they started publishing that uh, coming in sponsors on Amazon. And then with my publication, I thought I could get the copyright back, but it's in public domain. So wow. it was just so sad let it go. It was so sad he let it go. But he was dying of cancer. And we just think my mom and I think he just didn't feel well enough to copyright it. And he, he didn't know what was wrong with him. He, the doctor said he had colon cancer for 10 years before he finally died. Hmm. So, um, and he was a smoker. He had a uranium mine in the book. There's a picture (laughs) of him and some uranium. He said on the campaign trail because my friend and I didn't believe it was uranium. My mom's like, yes, he had a uranium mine. That was uranium. He thought he was going to get rich <laughs> off of the off craze. He had a uranium oh mine, so he was trying to make money. But yeah, so in the book, he's actually holding uranium. I didn't, and that's probably why he ended up with cancer. You know, wow. so uh, yeah, I've never held uranium, but he
2: did. <laughs> you know, there's a real irony here for me. Um, in the public domain, of course, means that anyone is free to republish or duplicate it. Of course, in some Shakespeare's in the public domain, uh, a great many, you know, uh, important writers, artists, etc. And it always struck me as very poignant that Frank Capra, one of America's great filmmakers, who made one of the most iconic, mm, empathetic uh, American kind of fables ever, um, he. He was not a good businessman. And so it's a wonderful life, a film that is mercilessly played to death at Christmas and Easter uh, and New Year's. Um, And originally, thankfully, they're not showing any more colorized versions of it. He never renewed the copyright. That film Mm -hmm. belongs to all of us. And in a funny way, his bad business skills gave the world a very special gift. Ironically, your grandfather's historic writings and this book, you've republished them, and that's great. But technically, they belong to the world. And in the big picture, you know, you guys get robbed of royalties except for, you know, this edition. But that's not a terrible yeah. thing. In a way, I think that's that's kind of poetic that his book belongs to the world. And let's remember, when he had his experience, in in a way it was sort of like um, compared to a normal UFO sighting, it was um, replicated in terms of sort of world awareness as what happened to Travis Walton when his story became public, um, that the world, not just Americans, wanted to know more about this subject. And in 1948, uh, and, and your grandfather moved quickly. Um, he must have started writing very shortly after. He had his experience in citing because the book, of course, was in print before the end of the year and then was republished in a, another edition in, in 1952. But it had such an impact on American culture. In a funny way, things were sort of waiting to happen. A lot of Americans post war were interested in non standard subjects, but You know, it was all kind of scattered. And in 1948, we get a new magazine. This is a replica of the very first issue of Fate magazine, which is still with us. Thank goodness. And the very first issue of the very first, you know, it's, it's now 70, God, 75 years they've been publishing has the cover of your dad's book, uh, your grandfather's book. And he writes the very first article in the very first issue of Fate Magazine. And you know what, it's still highly readable. He was a very good writer. And I remember years ago when I found the book and I was just in my obsessive stage of I need more information and I'll get to it Mm -hmm. when I get to it. It was just bang, I've got that one on my shelf now too. But it was some time before I actually sat down to read it. And what I found was a thoughtful, uh, reflective, grounded description of what you know an American citizen kind of minding their own business in the sky, uh, although you know on a search for the the down plane, had, it's really it's not just a cultural artifact. It's still a book very much worth reading. Is what I'm saying, Earl. When you um, did you get that original edition, or was the edition that's just been published by Chanel your
3: first copy of the book? The first time that I read <clears throat> Chanel's grandfather's book, uh, or you know, I I was very young. It was at the grammar school that I was in. They actually had a few UFO books. And my mom, uh, you know, had worked with officialdom and yes. she had told me when I was five years old that, that the UFOs were real. She knew. So I, yeah. And I, so I had that interest. I, you know, and, and, but it, it was one of the first books that I ever, uh, you know, at that time, I, it was fourth grade. So I was about 10 years old. It was a little, <laughs> it's written very eloquently, you know? Yes. But it, I, is, it was, it is very much It was so. this one and it, and I think the the Kehoe book was there and and uh, the, they had a Heinrich's first book. Uh, funny um, thing is is that I they, they they actually took them out of the school library after I I gave like a little show and tell in front of the tonight talked about oh my you mom subversive and bastard, bastard. <laughs> shame on you for just... <laughs> so that's... i'm not, i'm against taking books out of school you know that's that's something yeah we, we, don't wanna... we were
2: through that earlier today <laughs> and yesterday um <laughs> i i want to know because like me i i expect you know we're all readers and for me i'm always reading a ufo book and at this point in my life it's not even so much that i have this endless curiosity. I'm kind of, after more than 40 years, I'm doing pretty good, and I've got my curiosity in control, and I, I continue to read books to educate myself. And of course, in, some radio hosts, are they they don't feel the obligation to actually read a guest's book. I, I do. Um, I think it, it adds to the interest of the show, if you know what you're talking about. And at the same time, um, I'm always reading books that have nothing to do with UFOs, books for pure enjoyment. My question is, have you read or are you reading the new edition of the book now, Earl, or is it sitting on your
3: to-be-read? Oh, read I read file? it. Oh, I oh, know, okay. oh, I read it. And I loved, I loved the the editions that you put in. I mean, the, the, the photos and everything are just Aren't beautiful. Aren't they great? And,
2: and the color photos, wonderful. and that they're slightly larger and better, well, they're better reproductions. The added material it's like let me just ask you because it's as as good a way to introduce um our audience some of who might not be aware and first let me just say there's a chanel has referred to the maury island case a number of times this still is an extremely contentious allegation and there are people and i'm one of them who feel that it's certainly questionable And that one of the reasons it was staged was to take attention away from the person who should have been receiving the attention. And that was Kenneth Arnold. Um, Earl, can you give our listeners and viewers an idea of the sweep of the book and what it's about and your impressions
3: of it? Well, I mean, the beauty of the book is just, you know, is, is that, uh, it, it was about a brand new subject for everybody in the world, and in the way it, he just so eloquently wrote in this thing. But I, I, you know, I feel like the thing is, is that um, you know he, he he went in and he, he talked about uh, his experience, but he also you know follows it up with you know other other. Um, you know the the other material that, that yes. he had in there but i you know i one thing i what i would love to mention is is what you know chanel sent me a copy of this and she actually she actually mentioned me on the back of the book which was very meaningful to me that was a surprise i had no idea i was I just told for- to get you've earned it earl
4: yeah. oh thank it was you. it it was an well, essay in college. And I asked Earl, "I'm like, tell me something, Earl, and what do you think <laughs> about the doctors?" And so, yeah, I I put that in there, and it's just ironic, you know, that it was actually, you know, ended up in a book. <laughs>
3: that's crazy.
4: Uh, but I that's how we it. met,
3: not- Peter. Is that uh, yeah. Chanel? I believe that you contacted Mufon. I I forget. Did they mm-hmm. give you my contact information or something, or uh, or did did you just I I forget how that happened, but she asked me for some help and to do an interview with me for a a school, you know, her, her, it was a final, I think, wasn't it a a final essay essay that you had to write?
4: Essay for 102 English. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Chanel, (laughs) you mentioned, um, that after, um, your father, your grandfather became a public person that he received communications from, um, Ministers, pastors, individuals who obviously saw uh, a a more theological or religious or transcendent aspect to the -hmm. phenomena or his experience. Do you know um, if in the communications that he got, maybe, you know, in in your family archive, did he also receive letters from people who felt just the opposite, that what he was doing or talking about was demonic or evil or you know, in yeah, some well, way
4: people want to, yeah, there's people that want to say that they're evil angels, fallen angels. And, and in the book um, only a couple of days after his sighting in Pendleton, there was a pastor that said he was a pro- prophet prophet for the end of the world. But um, hmm. I don't know. He, he definitely, you know, was, was uh, ridiculed a lot. So, you know, it just, he, he wasn't a very, he, after his, speeches were in the you know he just really didn't speak on the subject much until about nineteen seventy seven and then what was the question again because I lost my train of thought. Um, like, where, yeah.
2: Basically um you've answered it. Um well okay. ba- were there any um, people who specifically called him out or attacked him for promoting oh. something demonic or evil or yeah. anti Christian <laughs> right. or
4: my grandmother's real a letters away he got he got bags full of letters he talked to the guy that talked to the people from venus i can't remember what his name was the guy that met people from venus wrote him um a, he's in a beautiful book that i have and yeah he he definitely contacted my grandfather and my grandfather thought he was way out there but my grandmother got so overwhelmed with all the mail she threw a lot of it away which is so sad but they were so overwhelmed they were 32 and 29 years old. They had oh, two wow. small children. And, um, you know, growing up, my mom, even, she was born 10 years later. She was born in 1954. She got ridiculed as Arnold the Pig as Green Acres was popular just because of who grandfather was. And, um, you know, it's sad that a lot of the mail was thrown away. But my mom still got some. And he kept some things that he thought was important. And... My mom gets so frustrated how everybody wants all this material. Sometimes she says she's going to burn it. And I'm like, would you stop it, mom? You know, because she's leaving it to me. But she, yeah, I, I hope my mom doesn't have a breakdown. One of these days, it just takes a burn <laughs> pile because she's we all do. But, Um You've
2: yeah, just brought up she, a very important point, though. And uh, Wilhelm yeah. Reich had a wonderful phrase that often jumps into my mind, which is evasion of the obvious. I don't think I've ever really thought about Kenneth Arnold till this moment as a working businessman in his early 30s with a wife in her late 20s with two young children doing his best to earn a living in the post-war years who by a quirk of circumstance becomes the, the face on this new phenomenon. And all of a sudden, the world you know wants to know what the gimmick is uh what he's in it for what it's really about um, of course it is what it is it wasn't like he was looking to you know uh, spin this into a flying saucer empire and you know become a famous person because of it just the opposite it seems and understandably so uh, but i had never thought of him just in that simple human term yeah. of this was not asked for and you know how disruptive this could be to the life of one family who is just doing its best to get along and all of a sudden you know you're famous for reasons you'd prefer not to be
4: he was on an episode of to tell the truth so if you guys ever find it let me know oh. my mom and i can't find it to tell the truth it was an old uh old, like it's almost, it wasn't a game show, but it was just like old. I used to TV. watch it.
3: Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. an old guy. Yeah. It was that on, was on was in on.
4: the 60s. Yeah, Granddad was on the episode and we can't find it. Oh, it's got to be out there somewhere, <laughs> but it was, he was on to tell the truth and yeah, we, we hmm. would love to find it.
2: <laughs> well, I can tell you um, in New York City, uh, I don't know if it so goes <clears throat> by the same name, but there is the Museum of Broadcasting and it has oh. You know, kinescopes of tens of thousands yes. of golden age, you know, black and white, um, old 50s television shows, among other things. And I, I know years ago, I tried to actually um, go there and, and what it was about was um, um Sheila McRae, uh, who was a major Broadway player in the 40s, 50s, 60s and on was a friend of mine and Gordon McRae, one of the best known names in American musicals, the star of carousel and the original versions of uh, Oklahoma, um, had a UFO, uh, experience I'll say during the war or just after the war. And it seemed to act to emotionally destabilize him. He was an MP on a Mm -hmm. crash site. And, um,
3: Wow, I didn't know that. When
2: I, I questioned um, her about mm-hmm. it, she said, well, you know, he wasn't terribly open about it, but I talked about it on the Johnny Carson show. So uh. I set about to try to find mm-hmm. it. But the first thing I learned was there are like something like 2000 shows and they are not cross-referenced by wow. subject or guest. So that was out. But you might have different luck. Um, this, of course, was a major American television show. And um, you know, Google Museum of Broadcasting in New York City. You should get something like that in a couple of hits and approach them and see if maybe they can assist you on this.
3: I know that Paul Hynek, he found his his dad was on uh, To Tell the Truth as well, I believe. For goodness sakes. And and he found his, He found it. So I could talk to Paul and find out. I mean, we have, a, yeah, we've got the, the Broadcasting Museum here too in Hollywood. So right. Uh, they you might know, have the exact I same records help you out yeah wonderful you know what
4: my daughter found my daughter found a Pawn stars is somebody with an autographed copy of the first edition of the coming of the saucers she just googled oh. it on cool. stars. And the book. it was only worth 300 at the time now they're worth more i don't know why the books are worth <laughs> more now but well, no, mine's my autographed was- too well,
3: but, but i think i do by your grandfather is autographed by you which yeah. is very meaningful
4: <laughs>
2: yeah. But as the subject receives more respectability,
4: Um, books are worth more. Do you know Ray Palmer's son died? And the book I gave to my brother was is worth one hundred and fifty dollars now It's only a paperback copy. And it was when his son was publishing it. Hmm. But I'm pretty sure he's dead now. I don't think he's alive. But it came with a cassette tape and it was my grandfather's saying, and we, I listened to it with Jim Perry because I was on his podcast and he actually came to visit me and we listened to it. And it was my grandfather re, retelling the whole experience. And that book is worth $150. It's just a paperback book. It's crazy how much. Mm-hmm. And then first editions of his book are worth 500 Mine's worth 1500 because I have Captain E.J. Smith's book. And my mom found him before he died. And he autographed. Captain E.J. Smith autographed it to me. Right. He was my grandfather's friend. He saw nine flying saucers over Emmett, Idaho. And they met for Island together. But I mm. um, have yeah, that book and I covet it. But, you know, it's autographed to me. So, I yeah, it's my it'll probably be worth a lot more than 1500 someday, so.
2: Yes, I, I think you're wise to hold on to any and all artifacts attached to your grandfather and his estate, and at some point, um, you know, it, if it's possible to invest in some archival boxes and all those records that your mother continues to hover over, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, you know, you ultimately will have a a really important archive of you know a footnote to american history and um for natural archivists like myself uh that's something to be proud of and to hold for future generations
4: and i'm trying to hold the torch my 15 year old daughter we go to Chehalis once a year for the flying saucer party and she loves going she dresses up as Miku and we throw flying saucers off the balcony to everybody with prizes and and they had saucer days back in the time my grandfather saw flying saucers and they brought it back you know gosh how many years later 70 years later it's you know wow. saucer days, flying saucer wow. party and Chehalis is where he took off when he saw the flying saucers that's where he took uh, off so they started the lewis county museum there and i donated that letter to them they started the flying saucer party and i just rushed to get there they had a mural of my grandfather's sighting painted on a on a building there in Chehalis. and if i ever move out of idaho i'm moving to washington <laughs> well, you know good old Chehalis. you know. It's like the Uh, growing
2: number of UFO festivals, many of them with conferences attached, that are appearing um, more and more around the United States. And I have no problem with any of them. Um, When I even first heard the idea of a UFO festival, I I got a bit concerned because I thought it was going to be something really superficial and mocking. Well, what it really is, is just having a good time. And kind of celebrating in a way how deeply yes. ingrained the subjects of the UFOs and their occupants have kind of melted into the world of Western culture, not to mention entertainment. And it, you, you just can't swing a cat without, and terrible phrase, especially if you're a cat, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but um, Peter. It, it's so <laughs> ubiquitous in our culture. And again, you're if there's a ground zero... It's with your grandfather, his flight, and the publication of this very special book, and the republication. Um, We're about to go to break, but um, before we do, I just wanted you to let um, our audience know how they can order a copy of the new edition of Coming of the Saucers.
4: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's on Amazon, and it's the one that says republished by Chanel Chance with the bright red, you know, cover, and um it's 1947 to remember the year. And it's not the other one that is coming out of saucers by Kenneth Arnold. It's blue with two ladies holding saucers. Those are the imposters.
2: <laughs> and, and you can't miss this cover. And uh, that said, uh, this is Peter Robbins with my special guest tonight, Chanel Chance, and Earl Gray Anderson. And we will be back in three short minutes. Don't go away.
1: Hey, members! The new KGRA DB
0: app is now available on iOS and Android devices. Gain on demand access to any KGRA DB programming. Download any show directly to your mobile device to listen or watch on the go. Go to the App Store and search KGRA DB. The most important question facing humanity is on the verge of being settled once and for all. The Mutual UFO Network has been at the forefront of this journey for nearly 50 years. Our members worldwide are dedicated to the research, documentation, and awareness that will shape the future of humanity. Won't you join us?
1: It's not just a donation. It's a warm blanket. It's a bottle of clean water. It's a roof and a bed. It's knowing someone cares. It's feeling safe. You said today that's better than yesterday. Every dollar you can spare helps so much more than you can imagine. Please donate now
0: to help people affected by Hurricane Ian. Your support is urgently needed.
1: Discover the Observation Deck, a -a one-of-a-kind virtual event platform that takes video conferencing to the next level by using avatars to navigate a campus. There's so many areas and activities to choose from. There's a thousand-seat auditorium, an expo hall, a nightclub, and even a beach. So come attend a conference, take a class, or hear a lecture on the incredible Observation Deck campus. Go to theobservationdk.com. You're listening to the KGRA Digital Broadcasting Network. We provide unparalleled coverage of trending news in the world of ufology, cryptozoology, and paranormal phenomenon. Whether you're watching our video live stream or listening to one of our audio programs, you are getting the best from world-renowned researchers and hosts guiding you through topics the mainstream won't touch miss one of your favorite programs no problem head over to the members area at kgradb.com for access to our massive library of award-winning content make contact stay connected only at kgradb.com
2: And we are back. Meanwhile, here on Earth is the show. Peter Robbins is the host. And guests tonight are Chanel Chance and Earl Grey Anderson. Um, At the break, I was going through the Republic book that you have just brought out. And some of the photos are really wonderful. Also, the fact that some of them are in color and uh, sharper and clearer. And I want to share... For us to share a few with our audience. The first one that you sent me, which appears in the book, but this is a, a better print, is is my favorite. <laughs> yeah. A very silly looking, looking guy, a, I might say.
4: Always looking for an answer. <laughs> he thought and, it was his yeah.
2: Whatever that car is, I want it. it that yeah. it, Like a wonderful. That's you know what what kind of vehicle that was.
4: He always had fancy cars. That was one thing. Now he he did drive nice vehicles. So yeah, that is a cool car. And this is shortly after his sighting. This isn't too too long after his sighting. Mm -hmm.
2: And this is the picture most people have seen. Probably the most widely published photo of him. And a very handsome couple they were. Yes. And everybody was a smoker back then.
4: Yep, smoking. <laughs> okay, and let's talk is,
2: about this picture.
4: Um, if you'd like me to say, my grandfather ran for lieutenant governor of Idaho and he got to meet President Eisenhower. And he wow. is standing to the left of President Eisenhower in this picture. Yeah. I also have an picture of him shaking President Eisenhower's hand, but I couldn't locate it. But um This is great. Yeah. He had a lot of he had a lot of friends way up there, high up there in the in the, you know, military and and you know just uh politically. I can only imagine. That's uranium. (laughs) Oh
3: my God.
4: That's his uranium Yeah, that's part from his Fine. Great. <laughs>
2: Hug it a little tighter. Um damn. <laughs> oh, I
3: thought that's it not good. Been, <laughs> yeah. You know, frozen <laughs> beef, but he
4: said, like, what, mom? That's uranium. <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow. Major.
4: Oh, it's that unbelievable? And then this, this is, is what he did. I love that. Yeah, when he was running for governor, he painted his plane, Ken Arnold. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Fabulous. (laughs) He should have won. He definitely should have.
2: The last one that we have here is your Hmm. book, of course. Um, Again, um, was your grandfather saw ultimately, certainly at the end of his life, this incident, this subject, kind of through... His nuts and bolts attitude was tempered by a religious attitude. Is that fair to say?
4: Oh yeah, he he just at the end of his life believed there was a connection between living and the dead, and I think he was very forward thinking with it, his thoughts because of all all that he experienced in his life, witnessing them, and you know every experience he had was he felt like it was a spiritual experience. He felt like it was special and. I've been told that our DNA and our family had to be just right to see them, which I don't understand. But, um, after he saw him, everybody started seeing him. They call it the mysterious wave of 1947. They, nobody can explain why my grandfather saw him. Then everybody started seeing him. His friends started seeing him. His friends saw one banking in a cloud here in Idaho, looking for one with my, my grandfather, they saw one banking in a cloud. And so, you know his friends were seeing him too <laughs> but yeah well,
2: as we know from the historical record uh whatever he observed and for me the specific shape is not as important as the phenomena uh you know there are we have to face the fact that somewhere out there probably among different civilizations and groups on planets and asteroids and in underground cities or factories, there's manufacturing going on where these things are being built. And if you think of, you know, classic old Detroit and all of the different looking vehicles they were turning out, it was still variations on the same machine, but
1: mm-hmm.
2: again, um, he just happened to be in the, depending on your attitude, the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the right time. And <laughs> got caught up in in this historical uh moment this absolute hurricane of, of, of folks seeing these things um again as a little girl <clears throat> what are some of the you know kind of personal family maybe holiday related or you know special occasion related things that you remember uh, about your grandparents on that side of the family
4: oh, i wish I in the book there's a picture like his last birthday um we dressed up our dogs and dogs and went to his house with my grandmother as well and my mom made him a saucer hat and it kind of looks like a dunce hat but it wasn't a dunce hat it was just a saucer hat with nine flying saucers on it and he wore it you know it was still kind of like you know he uh that I have some pictures of that and that, that I just sticks out to me in my memory a lot because, you know, my family was there and, and uh, it was his last birthday. So um, definitely I, I remember that, that last birthday of his. And, um you know, and I was only, I was seven, almost eight. So, you know, he just sat me down before he went to Seattle to go to the hospital and told me those two things to not trust the government, to think for myself. And, you know, he just knew he was passing the torch on to me or my mother. But honestly, my mother uh, was supposed to, in Pendleton, Oregon. They were going to start a, a festival there, but she didn't have a book. And so she could never pursue the career of being a public speaker about my grandfather. Now she's 69. He was 68 when he died. My mom's one year older and she really can't travel. She's just, you know, older and and you know, th- she thinks I have fun doing it, you know, and being a speaker, and and I enjoy it, you know. I hope I can attend more more things, you know, and get my name out there and sell some Absolutely. books, and
3: yeah. It's, it's important amazing. that young people are doing this, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm in my sixties. You know, I'm sixty; just turned sixty-five. And sometimes I'll yeah. go to conferences and things, and 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 you know, it's like a lot of people are my age that are there. And oh. um, and I know that there's a huge interest. You look at Reddit or anything like that. You know, yes. a, a lot of the younger people. My son is actively reading the UFO pages on on Reddit. So it that's it's wonderful that you're doing it, Chanel. I mean, I can't think of anybody better. There, there's nobody better for doing that than you.
2: Yeah, it's it's now um, part of the issue, I think, was as we entered the digital age, the electronic dis- distractions amped up incredibly. And I remember years ago speaking to my nephew, who um, probably the closest thing I have to a son who I absolutely adore, a very sharp guy who is now in his early 30s. But going back to when he was younger and knowing that his aunt had had a uh, an experience being taken that his uncle was in the work and, you know, had a book with his name on it and spoke at conferences and things. I asked him, you know, um, not that he could speak for his generation, but what his thoughts were on why there weren't more younger people involved. And he said, you have to understand, you know, right now we are all just so inundated with data and information and Uh, demands in terms of you know this entertainment or that entertainment at the same time just focused on trying to get a job or a career or finish school of course they're real of course the government lies about it and of course there are people that you know do this full time i i wouldn't even give that a second thought it's more a matter of um you know i get it but i don't have to devote my life to it also i think now in the past few years certainly in this what i'll call the continuing reduction of ridicule era it's okay socially it's not uncool to take the subject seriously and more and more you know just look at the past few weeks or the past month in terms Uh of national focused interest yet once again on the subject and boy it ain't going away um so i i agree with earl absolutely um when you're able to get yourself to the next conference you know i'm I'm sorry you won't be able to join us at the end of august in cincinnati for the mufon symposium there um (laughs) i would love to you know see you sitting at a table you know just selling out copies of the book and you know at the same time it's not inexpensive to go to these things Earl, um, jump in here. Um, when we had originally talked about doing this show, one of the things that you know about me is I'm primarily focused on that narrow corridor of
0: chumba
2: plus terms and
0: conditions apply. website for details.
2: The intelligences that are manifested by the greys, the abduction phenomena, uh, more than um, the greater spiritual aspects and understandings and interpretations, we're in a period of time now where more and more obviously um, people who would have never talked about this to anybody outside of maybe their own small circle of UFO serious people, more and more people care less and less what other people think about what they think about the UFO phenomenon, which is very healthy. Um, But there are continuing to be several emerging um, areas of influence or or, uh, philosophy or thought. One is that um, they're all good and that it's government propaganda to believe otherwise. Another is that um, those people who put forward accounts like those ones documented uh, by the late Bud Hopkins or David Jacobs or in some cases John Mack, who is usually just associated with you know, positive experiences, uh, and that was not the case. And then other people who feel like me, that there's a spectrum, that there may well be as many varieties of them as there are of us, from ones who are, for lack of a better description, deeply spiritual, connected to humanity in ways we do not understand, wanting to be of assistance, more and more people who want them to kind of, uh, in, in Jungian terms, be that new pantheon of God's, that helps us out of the mess that we have created here on earth and makes everything right again. Or, you know, they're all evil and just um, gotten better at their PR and sucking us in before they reduce us to the fluids that they drink at night to stay alive. Um, It's all over the place. Uh, (laughs) But Arnold himself, um, again, went from being a pragmatist, to somebody who is open to more spiritual aspects about this. Um, both of you, I'd like for you to kind of move into having a dialogue together with me occasionally coming in about this whole idea. And you and I know, Earl, um, that there's a certain amount of dissension that the best example I can give is I've spoken to um um, one of the individuals I think is a terrific researcher and whose focus like Dr. Max has been on what is positive about this? What given the nature of the experiences that people have, some of which are very frightening to them or disorienting or threatening or, or scary. Is this your attitude or are you dealing with individual other intelligences who simply don't care um, it's. it came to a point where he and I kind of went at each other a little bit, him feeling that the kind of experiences, again, that Hopkins documented, which are not necessarily ones that are pleasant or positive, was simply bad PR for people who were having good experiences. And that they really needed to either keep quieter or we needed to establish that they were good aliens, but frightened people. I think you get what I'm saying here. Sure. Um, And it's, you know, we're all in this together. And
3: um, jump in on this, you two. Well, I've. I've learned that, you know, I, I've, I've gone both ways. I, I, I had a, a contact experience uh, eight years ago, and, and it was not a positive one. It scared the hell out of me. Um, but after following that... There were all these positives that that were kind of in its wake um and i think uh, you know kenneth reen mentioned it i think first uh, dr kenneth reen uh, back in 1991 that people that have had contact with uh, anomalous beings will oftentimes usually will start manifesting some of the gifts that we usually attribute to our visitors themselves. Uh, Jacques Vallée and Eric Davis uh, also talked about this, and they called it the, the valet davis effect.
2: And I know and you is jump true. in for one moment, um, um, <laughs> that you are right now working your way through that extraordinary body of work of Jacques Vallée's early work. And uh, done. so I'm almost a lot done. of this is fresh in your mind.
3: <laughs> yes. And and you know the way that I feel about the the different entities, I think that it's it's a full spectrum. Uh, I would like it to be all good, but uh, in our culture, I mean, if if we were talking about humanity, okay, well, are humans good? I mean, we have our Gandhis and our Hitlers, you know, and and depending on who you are, you know, for for some people, the uh, Gandhi was was a a foe, you know. So, uh, and and uh, but but for myself, my though I had this initially scary uh, experience. uh, Following that were synchronicities and 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 a a heightened intuition. I I noticed Uh, empathy was kicked up through the rafters. And teachable moments. Uh, I've I've had a couple of sightings where I felt like they were targeting targeted towards me to teach me something about this phenomenon, uh, you know. And, and so I I see both sides. But if somebody's had a horrible experience, I mean, we 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 know certain people. Um, you know, I one, one of my friends in the UK and I, I won't mention her name, but but her she's afraid of her daughter and she had a terrible experience. And and I, w- I was talking with her and she was very, very angry because I was talking about these good things that came from my, my experience. Yeah. Uh, what I will tell people now, experiencers in general, whether they have a good experience or a bad experience, they can find it good in it because it's like a cosmic contagion this this uh, valet davis effect and and if people stop long enough to get past their own fear they may notice that their empathy has been kicked up some people are given the gift of healing for goodness sakes um Um, so that's my view Um, again i'm gonna jump in
2: for a moment here because i completely neglected in the first half of the show to ask chanel to describe for us the ufo sighting that she had when she was living in portland yeah. oregon uh, again you are the granddaughter of the first man to observe what we'll call unidentified flying objects truly anomalous uaps etc mm. and all of a sudden there you are having this experience mm-hmm. can you set the yeah. scene and then tell us what happened
4: uh, yeah it was it was like early 2000. My daughter had just been born. I needed a job, so I took up delivering newspapers. And you got to do it like four in the morning when the possums are all out screaming at you, you know. And I, I was always listening to Coast to Coast, you know, Art Bell. I called into wow. his shows a couple of times, and I said my mom's email, and he hung up on me one time. And Art Bell. I called in the international line one time <laughs> and he hung me, but I still listen to the guy. But I'm listening to Art Bell and I noticed this huge blue and green, like huge UFO hovering oh, like in the distance.
2: You have the sighting while you're listening to the Art Bell show?
4: <laughs> in my car, That's yeah. Great. I was delivering newspapers. Was, and it's like four or five in the morning. Every you know, I'm delivering newspapers and I see That's this it's the night um, <laughs> Oh my god. The night. But I, I felt like they knew I was there. Yes. I felt the awareness that they <laughs> were there, but I kept checking my watch. I didn't have any missing time or anything. But then like my mom came to visit. That was one, one experience I had. And, and it finally disappeared. And I quit that job because I was so freaked out. But my mom came to visit and we also saw one off our deck of our uh, apartment. What uh, was that one? like, and, like dropping some i don't know if it was a ufo for sure or not but it was pretty crazy it was like orange glowing and then like stuff was falling from it and it just seemed so weird i don't think it was a weather balloon or anything but one thing That's i so want much. to talk about is how i believe these ufo crashes we we've had is how we've gotten our technology i think this, these this intelligence is godlike And God wants the crashes to happen so we can reverse engineer. There is no way we went going from riding horses a hundred years ago, spitting tobacco and spittoons, drinking at the bar. to now we have computers like uh, George uh, Orwell wrote in 1984. We have telescreens everywhere. And he predicted this in 1943. His real name is even George Orwell. He changed it. He was so scared that he had predicted the future of like how everything was going to change. Like, Victory is Amazon. Amazon's victory is, you know, in 1984, the way he described that. But, um, also I want to say, Earl, I have the 1977 UFO Congress all on a tape. And I listened to young Jacques Vallée and his whole oh, take God, on it. You'd nice. probably love to listen to that. Yeah. I should probably mail it to you. Cause yeah. Uh, I, I, I'd
3: love a copy of it. <laughs>
4: yeah, he, uh, we're going to digitalize them, but, um, he had a, had a story of a, this little boy was taken upon a ship and he saw his dead grandfather on this ship. And, you know, and that makes sense to me. I'm like, huh, they, you know, it just kind of makes me believe more that, you know, our spirits go somewhere else, you know, our souls go somewhere else. And, and you know, we travel. My, my mother definitely believes it's the way we travel in other dimensions, flying saucers.
3: But, um, I'm I'm kind of a dimensionalist. I think you know, you know, I, I'm as Jock is, and and Heineck kind of went that direction. I mean, I think some stuff is probably coming from other star systems, but even then, it seems like they use portals to get here, regardless. Yeah. And that's a dimensional yeah. thing, you know, it's going out from our dimension into another one, and then popping back into this one. Um, but you know, your grandfather had such a spiritual. Uh, element to himself and that comes out in his book beautifully and and as i've become friends with you you know and learned more about him you know and 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 his beliefs uh it, it's he was ahead of his time that way i mean yeah. it's like a lot of people that start nuts and bolts with this thing heineck did valet did whitley streber you know but they it seems like it's it it leads a person to find their own spirituality it 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 frees the person so i think a lot is going on with this phenomenon i think that it may be like in some ways like a control system for how we evolve and the whole idea of things crashing i i agree i there's the trojan horse idea um, that they do this purposefully, and, and I think John Keel brought that up at one point, and uh, yeah, that's that's my feelings as well.
2: I again, this is such an interesting area to pursue because it's based on our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs, and not necessarily what is. Um, reality is it doesn't care what we believe, and whatever the truth about this phenomena, um we are left to our own devices to put these ideas forward. I always felt that they weren't godlike, they were highly advanced, but that where you have technology, you have always the potential for mechanical problems.
3: And that they're not all the same people. That's what I think. I mean, some are more advanced than others. No this is just one intelligence that's no doubt coming here.
2: But that yeah. crashes um, happen because something, some minute little this or that, goes wrong, or as some theorize uh, around the Roswell crash, that it might have had to do with a severe thunderstorm that was going on about that time. Whatever again, we believe um reality is
3: sitting there in the wings, either yeah, nodding that's or true. shaking its head <laughs> one way or the other. I've been wrong before, and I'm oh. sure I'll be wrong about stuff again, and I'm probably well, wrong about certain things right now. But that's I, the beauty, I think, of this phenomenon. It, it causes us to dig in ourselves and to think about these deep things. You
2: know, I, I've used this analogy before, and. Um, It's this childhood tale of the six blind men uh, and the elephant. And they're all over that elephant. One's got his leg wrapped, his arms wrapped around one of the legs. Another is examining the tail, another hand on the tusk, another the ear. Of course, there's the trunk. And um, then, you know, just that whole wall of hide here. And they are arguing with each other on what the elephant is, because for each one of them, it is that thing at that moment but better to argue that you're wrong as opposed to we all have pieces of a totality here i think a certain amount of human ego comes into that and certain um, individuals who become well known in the work and some very well known um, almost become leaders of schools of thought and um, like religion i believe this and i'm supported by um, the faith that my belief is right. And, oh, look, there are more and more people around me who believe the same thing and have faith in the same abstract ideas that I do. So I guess we're right. No, <laughs> I'm not necessarily. You yeah. are a self-contained group functioning much like a religion. And if you draw strength from it and peace, that's wonderful. But sometimes, you know, stepping a little further along it can mutate into a cult. And there's certainly been those oh, yeah. in the world of UFO studies. I'm glad Heaven's history gate. records that none formed around, you know, your grandfather or around his sighting.
4: No, I mean I remember Hellbomb, the comet in Heaven's Gate. I that oh. is like when my husband and I first met, that was going on. We went and watched the comet and then, you know, they kill themselves thinking there's a UFO behind it you know, that's out, that's out there. We got to stay grounded. We can't do stuff like that, you know, definitely. We don't need
3: any more religions, <laughs> you know, no, philosophies, no. that's fine, you know, but, but dogma is the end of all, you know, creative thought. Yeah. You know,
2: I, I think it's worth um, actually delving into this a little bit because some people might not be aware uh, of what happened back then in 1997 in a way it touched me personally, not that I lost anybody. And uh, I think the 43 suicides um, following that uh, yeah. uh, horrible man's uh, edict, um, uh, Apple, Apple. Apple, Apple Day, exactly. Yeah. Well, in early 1997, um, the book that I had co-written had just had uh, the first printing uh, of the book. And,
3: the apple first white. That was an apple white.
2: My co-author and I had copies was at uh, a very big conference that year in Gulf Breeze, Florida. And as a new author, you know, it's, it's very exciting and the novelty of sitting at your table and there's a line of people that want you to sign or inscribe your book. You're trying to be as grown up as possible and say things like, uh, would you like that signed or inscribed as opposed to thank you for buying my book. Um, and you know, uh, he's over here, I'm over here, he's inscribing them or not. And uh, at a certain point, I look up and there's a face. And it was enough not like other faces that I'll never forget it. For me, early 70s, uh, a zillion little lines, what I would call flat affect, that there's no expression whatsoever on the face whatsoever. uh, And that, you know, you're kind of holding your musculature so that it won't express anything very closely cropped gray hair possibly a small cab dressed in earth tones and um behind him a early 20 something dressed much the same with the same haircut and i looked up and said would you like that signed or inscribed jane said in a monotone just signed and um then the same thing for uh, obviously his acolyte and they disappeared into the crowd Not long after, I was staying actually at Bud Hopkins' house and um, we turned on the news and we learned about this terrible mass suicide uh, among this cult, the Heaven's Gate cult. Part of their insanity uh, based around this charismatic leader's beliefs was that hidden in the tail of the comet was a mothership and their whole mystical theology was based on when the mothership comes that's when we get to transcend and get off the earth and get on there and go out in space but in order to do that it was necessary in Applegate's terms to quote unquote drop your bodies which necessitated stop living and so they did it the next morning uh, I get a call from my co-author and then I get a call from the publisher who's down on Broadway. And my publisher, who's a a guy named John, says, I need you at the office as soon as you can get here. What's going on? He said, I'll fill you in when you get here. The night before, um, CBS had a a short-lived news magazine, I think called 30 Minutes. Um Dan Rather was the host. If not, it had a name like that. And it was, I think, maybe a half-hour news show um, during the week. And the night before they had had, CBS had been the first news organization to be allowed into the collective home once the bodies were out. And apparently on their large communal uh, coffee table in the living room were four books. Now I don't know whether the cult people were reading them, or whether for some weird reason the police put them there, or possibly the CBS people. But the camera was on them. One was um, the newly, uh, uh, one was Kenneth, um, uh, was Timothy um, Good's book above, Top Secret. The second one was Whitley Strieber's Communion, and the third was Bud Hopkins' Intruders. All published 10 years before, in 1987, the fourth book was left at Eastgate, and mm. that's the one oh. the news people were basically calling the publisher's office repeatedly. Why? Because obviously, in their minds, there was a connection between Eastgate and Heavensgate.
3: Oh, no.
2: And he, I get to the office, and he said, I'm setting you up in one of the empty offices, These are the news people you're going to speak to and explain as well as you can that there is no connection between this horrible tragedy and between your book. That was the first bit of national publicity left that Eastgate had maybe a bad omen, Um, but to be caught up even tangentially and realize that a week and a half, two short weeks before, maybe less, there was this guy and there's no mistaking that it was Applegate himself. And one of the guys obviously who went on to kill himself a week and a half later at the orders of this horrible little twisted monster guy. Um, Again, off on a tangent here, but um, the timing is appropriate and the story is significant for what it is. Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah. Otherwise, though,
4: yes, please jump in. Cults are always shocking. I was always obsessed with Jim Jones, you know, mass suicide. That just blew my mind. You know, cults are just so tragic, you know. It's always, let's kill ourselves (laughs) is the answer, you know. (laughs) Uh, You
3: you know, know. I mean, it's just the dogma, you know. Well at the other <laughs> when extreme, people say it's this way and everything else is wrong yeah and you have yeah. to believe this way and you have to the do leader this whatever do the leader
2: says is correct and That's unfortunately that way a problem lies nightmares um then again there are other cults that are not damaging they're quirky there's um Unarius, Unarius.
3: <laughs> which
2: is kind of charming and harmless and yeah they're you know bu- it's it's basically an extension of the 60s contact movement and the welcome the space brothers my favorite if you can say that of these cults was one that emerged in the 70s around a french canadian journalist whose name is claude Raille used the oh, the, the, name of the, yeah. the aliens were the raelians r a i l e i a n s i think and he published a book in the 70s that, well, um, I'm going to grab it off my uh, shelves briefly. I think it was one of the first books that I ever got gratis as a reviewer um, and an unknown quantity in the world of UFO studies. But it it always struck me as hysterical in kind of a dark way that. When he published it, and he had made contact with these beings and established, you know, kind of an organization on Earth where the enrollers, so to say, and I'm sure it was a coincidence, were all extremely attractive Canadian women with blonde hair and large breasts. And I'm all for that, no question. (laughs) But I mean, it was kind of goofy. What set me back was the originally published emblem of the Raelians, which... He wore a claude rail in uh you know kind of a, a, a piece of jewelry around his neck was what we would call a star of David superimposed on a swastika. Which oh that's is right. Kind of, um, that. oh. um you know, um for some people it, it's it's a symbol that's fraught with all kinds of possibilities. Um yeah. continue on. I've got to find this book. <laughs>
3: Well, so now you know there are these destructive, dogmatic cults and stuff. But your grandfather, he he was really everything that he talked about was sweet, and it seemed like he had a large tent. That okay. uh, how, how do you feel about that? I mean, I, I think that your your grandfather knew that it was spiritual. He he had. The, his, his own spiritual beliefs, but, but it's not like he was telling people you have to do this or you have to believe this no. or have to, do, no. And it, did you see that that affected his own life in a, in a good way that his, 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 I mean, I, that's a rhetorical question really, but his, his belief sy- system that he had.
4: Well, he just, he definitely thought, you know, more, had more, uh, I think the right word, he, he, had a lot more of a, just like, just knew that this is a question that had to be answered. And, you know, his military friends would send him UFOs and uh reel to real, and he sent it into the government. Hey, explain this. And they cut out the UFO, sent it back. And so there's nothing here. So he was always uh, so frustrated because he, he was always trying to get the government to give an answer. And, um, hmm. you know, they, they, they wouldn't, even, even yeah. Alan Hynek was kind of critical of him in the beginning, but then he became a believer. I think he came around with yes, time, he did.
3: you know. He I was, was I, wanted to, I wanted to mention, I too, Alan- you know, that sorry, well, you know, Hynek started as a skeptic, he didn't believe in UFOs a at all. Bunker. He had, yeah, he, he had an arc that you know of, of, of learning and, and he wound up, uh, you know, he, he was absolutely a believer in the end. What Something that I, I thought was really interesting, a lot of things that your grandfather mentioned, we still see. Like the way that he talked about these crescent-shaped UFOs moving, uh, it's a very common pattern. They call it the falling leaf motion. And and I still have people that, that report their UFO sightings where – you know, I had a couple of women that saw a UFO over Azusa, California here. And they described the same thing. That it was city doing this in the air, you know. Um, and also, we still get crescent-shaped uh, craft sightings. Sure. Sometimes people will call them a boomerang shape. But I'll have witnesses draw a picture. And I had somebody draw. It, it was a freaking crescent. It looked like your grandfather's uh, sighting that he had. So... The guys that he saw are still here. <laughs> They're still coming yeah. to visit. You know,
4: yeah. Um, they probably knew they, like, the world. You know, finally. But like I studied with the Krishnas, and they talked about the flying vihanas. You know, they there are religions yeah, that still you know, gave gave these things credit. You know, but it just blows my mind. Why did we find them? You know, there's there's a uh, there's evidence. Oh shoot. Did I lose you guys?
3: No, you're still there.
4: Oh, oh gosh, no. I, just I just can't see. you. Uh, I'm trying. To... Yeah. Well, I don't know if you can see me, but there's still evidence. I think Peter but, might have um... frozen
3: there.
2: Um, oh really? Here, let me... Yeah, your image is frozen, but we can still hear you. <clears throat> but I'll just you. finish the thought I was going to say. Um, the oh, okay. the Raylians, the book that was published by their founder on Earth. Um, the cover, I think, is a good example of um, screaming out loud what you are and who you are and subtlety be damned. There we go.
4: Oh, wow, that oh looks my. like fun.
2: Yes. But now, I want you to take a look at the emblem. It yeah, I... is really a swastika type uh-huh. shape inside of a and Jewish that's... star, which... Is mm. problematic for some of us. What I think is hysterical, and there's humor in this, is apparently um, a few years later, the Raelians decided for some reason that their emblem was not helping their presence on Earth. So they made a slight change. And uh, this promotional <laughs> card, I think, captures it nicely. It's a pinwheel, no swastika oh, wow. anymore. It's just sort of oh. a happy
3: Jewish symbol there. All good. <laughs> I mean <laughs> um, well that's better, I think. Better, have a <laughs> God. better than
2: better than quite a number we can think yeah. of. Um I,
4: I learned in world religions the swastika actually was a was a Hinduism symbol. Oh, Yes.
2: It was a, the swastika goes back to it as certainly yeah. a good luck symbol in, in Hindu, but reversed. Uh, it's it's basically history repeating itself. Oh, Chanel, have you your local library sorry. or um,
4: no, high school, for example, that,
2: and put yourself out there as a possible speaker?
4: Um, well, not really. I mean, there's a guy in the library named Ken, and he a uh, year ago like 2013 had seminars and it was so cute i showed up when we were going to hollywood to do the phenomenon of james fox and all that and it's a bunch of old people and you know i'm just like sitting there and i'm like he said they were going 1200 miles per hour i'm like nope i'm his granddaughter they're going more like 1700 he's like what and everybody's like what and then i was like yeah me and mom are going to hollywood to you know do a film and you know that's the first thing mom's ever really done and and I had to drag her down there. She just, she is just, she doesn't like to travel. And yeah, <laughs> people need to come here and interview her. That's what needs to happen, you know.
2: As a film lover, and I really hadn't thought about this until this moment, but your grandfather's story um, of how a private businessman who was minding his own business flying in that, you know, at that moment became this international focus and the impact on his life and family's life in much in the spirit of that, what I think is still a terrific film, uh, Roswell by uh, Don Schmidt and um, Paul David, which focuses in on not the phenomena, but the impact it had on the whistleblower, so to say, Jesse Marcel, senior. And it's a, it's a tough story. Um, your dad, Thankfully, your grandfather, thankfully, I keep saying that, um, did not, was not put in that kind of internationally humiliating, um, really demeaning overall uh, focus. You know, people thought what they did about him, but, you know, he held his head high and um, continued on. Did he stay in the business of supplying um, firefighting equipment Or did he move on to something else? He
4: he almost died in a, he got caught in a tornado and he had to get stitches all around his forehead. It ripped the skin off his face. He crashed in an airplane crash, almost died. But no, he was always, he flew till the very last day he could fly. And then I guess the story goes, is he sold his airplanes to build grandmother's house. Grandmother wanted a dream house and he built it for her, you know, and it's still Mm -hmm. there. I hope we can hold on to it. But, you know, mom, mom's getting old and my dad's getting old and they really don't know if they can keep up with the yard work and whatnot. It's on anchor. But, you know, my husband, I really can't live with my parents, but, you know, if it gets to that point, we're probably going to have to take care of them if they get older because we don't really want them to go to a home because then there will be no house. Of course. um, save Kenneth Arnold's house (laughs) my husband has also thought we should make it into a museum which is kind of far-fetched but you know just with everything the mom's got you know as long as she doesn't burn everything in the burn pile because she's frustrated you know uh, she had a guy that copied uh, my grandfather's scrapbook and sold it to a guy in Florida she didn't find out for 15 years the guy's like oh yeah I got this scrapbook Um, from this guy I won't mention his name because we don't like him but yeah, he, he's, but he it was copied stolen everything from your family. He copy everything, and he did to, you mm. know, the files. My mom let it the files. He copied everything and sold, sold it, sold it. She had the originals, but, you know. Wow. So mom's a little, you know, she gosh the History Channel wanted to do something with us, and she still was like, no, nope, you're going to have to pay me some money. And they just they want you on there for hardly nothing. And so we weren't part of the newest UFO uh, show on the history channel, which kind of hurt my feelings. I was excited for it. And they talked to everybody, but instead they had a reenaction of my grandfather's sighting. That was it. No interviews, you know, of the family. And, you know, it was kind of sad. They they wanted my mom and I, but mom, she just thinks that she's, she's her stuff's worth money. And she just won't give stuff away. But then look at me, I'm sharing pictures and I'm just letting them go because uh, like they wanted to make a statue of my grandfather in Chehalis, Washington. But they didn't have a picture to go by because there aren't, there wasn't very many pictures of my grandfather out there. And so I always, I leaked that one of him looking up in the sky because mom had, I'm like, God, mom this is such a great picture. And, you know, I just want pictures of him out there that, you know, you know, he ran for governor i mean he was just he was an he was an honest guy he you know had this experience that was unbelievable you know and and he was able to to you know still succeed in life you know even though he was very disappointed at the end of his life because he felt like he had gotten no answer um and uh, you know Pass the torch on to me. It's really sad because mom really wanted to be a speaker when she was younger and now she just can't, she can't travel. She's just not in good health, but, can, can you know, you it's imagine? Up to me. You know, I'm 46 and I can't believe it. And then my daughter's into it and she's only 15. So maybe Summer will be the one that, you know, is speaking years from now instead of me. And she, you, you know, imagine? she kind of,
2: yeah. Can you imagine how differently your grandparents' lives your parents lives your lives would have been had he simply not been there to see what he saw Um, when he saw it can you even imagine how differently your family's life would have evolved fair enough
4: yeah yeah he just he lost so much privacy with with, uh, you know, everyone knowing where he lived and, you know, he just, it, it overwhelmed the family. It really did. And that's why they laid low after the fork and knife club set, seminars fell through. He laid low until about 19, 30 years later, 1977 and the know, Congress. And I have a uh, that these autographed, he had autograph books and I have some at the museum that I've donated, but you know, he knew his autograph was going to be worth something and it will yeah. eventually or something and uh, my mom just got all his books in the living room and I just pick out what I want bring them back here to my house and you know in the philosophy Bible though I'm really getting into it just because it just blows my mind that it's the thing I've been looking for all my life I study with the great Christians they believe in reincarnation but it you know you have to really be into dancing and you know painting on your face and doing color color throwing activities and you know it was kind of out there but um you know i i grew up with a mormon half the side of my family are mormons and and they're kind of open to the idea of of, you know being visited by aliens i don't really know how they explain it in church but one interesting thing Mm -hmm. i'm baptized mormon travis walton is baptized mormon and i think that in the in their book they talk about the second coming and how you know, it's like why? Why is it the Mormon religion that you know is? I think the aliens might have something to do with the Mormon religion. <laughs> uh,
3: I think <laughs> but, maybe too. I thought that as well.
4: I, think so. you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I but um, but you know, I just I studied religions in college, and and here in Boise, there, we we're a mecca. We got all sorts of religions. Like you know, I did a Christianity thing. That really. I don't know, I just don't think we go to hell forever. I think we reincarnate and we can't remember our previous lives because it would overwhelm us. You know, I just believe that when I was young, I felt like I exist now, but I've always existed. Even though I can't remember before 1977, I know I've always been, I've always existed. I know for a fact, we're lights that cannot be diminished. We're balls of energy, balls of light, just like Tesla said, and you know, it's great that we're evolving, but I think we're evolving to being telepathic. My grandmother was Norwegian, and when she was little, my great grandmother would have all the children sit around the table and think of the same song, and they would think of the same song. Um, and I have a, a book that my mother gave me by Alice ba- Bailey called Telepathy, and I've been reading it. Alice ba- Bailey's really esoteric, but She's got some pretty good books, but, um, you know, I think we're evolving to being telepathic because a lot of my good friends and I, we think of each other and then we call each other and, you know, like, it's just weird. It seems like we are connected. We just don't realize it, you know? Yes. You uh, know with cl- people we're close hmm. with, you know? Everyone's
3: wrong. connected. Every Everything oh, and everyone. Every, every, I yeah. mean, that's kind of, uh, yeah. Well, Ben Rich said, you know, it, 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 when he gave a, a lecture at UCLA, that he was asked how Ben Rich is. Oh, he, he was the head of Lockheed, but he was asked how uh, the, how we could possibly travel at the speed of light. And he answered, um, well, how does telepathy work? And the answer was, well, everything everywhere in the universe is connected. And he said, yes. And he said, and that's how faster than light uh, travel works as well. He was speaking as though it was already a thing, which is interesting. That was back in 1992 or something. Very provocative. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
4: But they do say these aliens, they're telepathic, and Mm -hmm. they they are more involved. And I feel like that's where we're heading. You know, we're heading to be telepathic, even though a lot of people don't want that to happen. (laughs) (laughs) You know. (laughs) Would stop lying
3: you know people wouldn't be able to lie oh, yeah. to each
4: other anymore yeah it's intrusive to everybody know <laughs> everything about you but, but uh you know i i know some of like, my good friends that we we uh, reach out to each other you know at the right time or call at the right time and they're like i was thinking of you and you know just stuff like that you know being <laughs> telepathic and i i was uh experienced somebody that had precognition which this person could tell the future and it was true what he predicted and that today baffles my mind because i looked it up and it exists but i don't understand how it works how you can actually predict the future it's precognition or something i googled it but people could actually predict the future because it's already happened supposedly <laughs> supposedly everything's yeah. happened you know, the only thing we have is this moment to do what we're going to do. But everything's already happened. And, you know, we're just like living in the moment now, it seems. But anyhow. Yeah,
2: I, yeah. I don't know if everything has happened already. Uh, at the <laughs> same time, I think you're absolutely on the money. The one thing we always have is the now, the moment. And to yeah. act as... Positively, as supportively, uh, with as much goodwill as possible in the moment. And if not, to um, do your best not to get hurt. (laughs) Um, As far as moments go, we have about 90 seconds worth of them left. Um, Any closing thoughts, Chanel, about your grandfather, his legacy? And again, uh, I know that the newly published version. Of The Coming of the Sausage is available, of course, on Amazon. If somebody would like to get an inscribed or signed copy by you, is there any way that they can do that? Realistically, do you have a website or someplace where they can go to order
1: uh, a copy?
4: I'm just on Facebook. It's just try to find me on Facebook and message me Chanel Shans. you know, and and, uh, spell my name, you know, the right way. I hope people can see how to spell my name. I think they can, yeah. So, yes. yeah. As I just it's spelled I
2: <laughs> on the Chiron under your name there? Yeah. S-C-H-A-N-Z. Um, both yeah. Earl and I really love this book and recommend adding it to your library. It is a remarkable American memoir in its own way. And um, the beginning. It is the very first UFO book and a really important addition to the literature. That said, our time is done. Chanel Chance, Earl Grey Anderson, my dear friend, thank you both so much for joining me tonight. And for the rest of you, stay well, stand up for what you believe in and be kind to each other whenever possible. See you next week.